0: And then cue the Baudrillard mix.
1: The very rules of evil, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is. How can I to the whole state of things? In pure violence without object This is the typical violence of Violent, because what happens there uh, is is the murder of the queen, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding
2: here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins. As always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we introduce today's guest, We would just want to mention, we've got a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider dropping us a buck a month there, but if not, maybe leave us an awesome review on iTunes. Either way, we'd be very appreciative. We're going to switch gears from our normal discussion to some degree, and we're going to be looking at Alan Turing's Computing, Machinery, and Intelligence essay, and our guest today is Griffin. Griffin, welcome to the show. You and Taylor met through the the machinery of uh of Twitter, which is awesome.
3: No, totally. <laughs> but yeah, welcome but, to the show. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having me. Uh long-time listener, first-time <laughs> caller. Uh, <laughs> hell yeah. Um but uh yeah, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to talk about Turing and the various connections to Deleuze and everything else
0: if it comes up. If I mean, it comes obviously. Up, yeah. Obviously, I I portended that it will. Let's, let's it not may.
2: pretend. Let's
3: not pretend. <laughs>
0: well, I I portended that it will, but I, will. I mean, I think it has to. <laughs> I, will, I, will, so I won't. I won't pretend, <laughs> but I'll pour, I'll portend. Right, right, right. You know, Coop and I obviously like. I already got my portent out of the way, but Coop and I, we had talked about Mintats and the Butleria Jihad. So yeah, I was gonna. <laughs> I was, have some. Some I was dune gonna bring that up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> right. Absolutely got some let's, dune, got some delays. Let's, let's try to oh behave. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's interesting that the very first title, right, of the section of the first section of the title of the first section. Let me try to scratch that and reverse it. Is called the imitation game. Although the title, of the paper is not, you know, even if we may think of this as the imitation game essay or something like that. It is interesting that the the initial game proposed is not necessarily that involving a machine. Right? Yeah. It's, now the intermediate the intermediate communication between the subjects ABC it is machinic, right? He's thinking of either a typewriter or right. some sort of one can imagine different machines for this. But he also says there could be a fourth party who's just kind of like carrying messages like a game of telephone.
3: There has to be some procedure, some sort of formalized right. mechanism of communication that eliminates the difference between or the perceived difference between the, the two interlocutors. We, But we let's back up, them. let's back up. And, and, yeah.
0: and if you want, I, I can let you do it. or We could all do it, but let's, let's set the, the game up. The original initial state of the imitation game just involves humans, correct?
3: I think that it's funny that he opens, even before he introduces the game, he says, I'm concerned with a question. Can machines think? Then I'm going to throw that question in the garbage can. Because I don't want <laughs> that there's a whole bunch of problems with defining what a machine is, defining thinking. And so he says, let's instead not re- let's not rely on semantics, you right. know. Right. Instead, let's let's propose a game. And so he calls it the imitation game. And initially, there he has three people: a man who's A, a woman B, an interrogator C, who can be of either sex.
0: And the interrogator Or... or, 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 or- or both, or neither, you know. Yeah, 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 right. Why not? It, of course. It, it, he he leaves that. He seems to leave that that blank, right? That undefined. The interrogator. Yeah. Am I He's, am I wrong? Or am I right?
3: He says, "Quote: Who could who may be of either sex?" I was. Who just may be of either sex? Okay, so from it, it's interesting that the the gender does kind of is fluid throughout the. As he refers back to the text, sometimes B turns into a man. Sometimes I think it's interesting
0: the pronouns, if you will, become algebraic, A, B, C. So it's even more, it's even further removed. The pronouns, yeah, they they, they just become algebraic variables to a certain degree, which may or may not be of more or less consternation to reactionaries, but doing calculus with gender symbols. (laughs) It's kind um, of interesting
2: because it would go to like Lacan, right? There's like the, or maybe Freud, the masculine position the feminine position let's Mm. say like the way that that in the relation to like a variable
0: in this context that would be lacan except he doesn't he doesn't like inscribe the masculine position or feminine position algebraically it's like everything surrounding uh, or under those positions becomes algebraicized including bringing in like greek symbols right you know like phi and for phallus or, or phallic blah 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 anyway I'm glad you brought that up, Coop, because there's obviously, like, some some Lucanian registers. Keep going. So, so yeah, we've got the three, right. we've got A, B, and C, we've got an interrogator, so there's going to be yeah. some, some questions
3: involved. The interrogator ha- knows them by different labels, though, X and Y. Right, and okay. Doesn't yeah. yeah, doesn't know which is which. So the role of the interrogator is initially to differentiate one of these, they know one is a man and one is a woman and they have to tell x is a and y is b or x is b and y is a and then the object of the game is separate for each player the object of the game is is for a the man to convince the interrogator of the truth that he is a man and and b is attempting to deceive and say that they are the man and the other one is the woman and so and so after proposing or oh, that- it's 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 X's job to make the
0: wrong identification, right? X could right. be X, a, yeah, yeah. X could be could be man or female. That's no, you're right, you're right. So yes. it's X's job if X is is a man, whatever, or a woman, but X's mm-hmm. job is to is to deceive, right? And Y's job is to try to tell the truth. Sorry, I'm just trying to No, you're good, you're good. You're right. That okay it's those signifiers that as he said it's easy to get mixed up because even turing himself maybe fails the imitation game by, by mixing <laughs> the symbols but yes so he x's does, job yeah. x's job is to deceive and y's job is to try to corroborate or try to get the interrogator to make the right assessment yeah. is that correct
3: yeah yeah and then after proposing that game he says although in this he goes to a instead of x and y instead of x and y right exactly (laughs) what will happen when a machine takes the part of a or of the deceiver in this game he says quote will the interrogator decide wrongly as often when the game is played like this as he does when the game is played between a man and a woman these questions replace our original can machines think
0: I mean, we could, and this is great because this is a very short opening section. There's a lot to unpack. We can talk about mm-hmm. even with just. I mean, I know that um, Coop, you and I have talked in and out the episode. We've come in and out. I I think it started kind of with uh, having Lorenzo Chiesa on to talk about the uh, the deceiving God, the non deceiving God, the the sort of this kind of Cartesian question, which is also obviously interests Lacan too to in, in different ways but yeah this this kind of notion of of certainty if you will right because mm-hmm. the interrogator's job is not necessarily to make to just guess because then that's just flipping a coin right they, now he may there may be in a conjecture or like an educated guess like to the best of my knowledge beyond or to a certain threshold of you know beyond right. a reasonable doubt or something yeah. like this this question of of doubt and certainty it does give it a, a kind of interesting it's like a cartesian box or something right or i guess three of them right at least
3: yeah and i think it's interesting you know obviously turings work before this is all about decidability he's responsible for at least the perhaps the most rigorous proof of undecidability in in mathematics and so i think it's funny that that then he's taking this decision from the machine To the person right now it's 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 the role of of the person to determine the machine so then I guess that goes into this second section of the essay well no he first he he critiques the new problem and most of that is concerned with allowing uh asking how 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 well does this problem, this new problem, map onto this question, can machines think? There's a line that I love, may not machines carry out something which ought to be described as thinking, but which is very different from what a man does. What I like is that he's not looking at thinking as this specific process between neurons, et cetera, et cetera, that then produces, and then that has a direct line towards human behavior, but instead we're starting with human behavior because the machine is put in this context to imitate a person and saying that there are, you know, who knows how many possible arrangements of instructions that this machine could be carrying out that could adequately produce human behavior. It doesn't matter how similar or how different any of those instruction sets are what matters is the result which i think is is an interesting way of thinking about thinking so mm-hmm. to speak it also yeah, just it, at least on yeah. its
2: surface has a kind of interesting parallel to like delos and guattari what yeah. does it do totally not totally. what it means what does it do
3: right you know, exactly and what I, are its yeah. effects you know he's throwing out this question of meaning and uh you know, almost to, to to have a more productive discussion, if nothing else, which I think is what he's trying to do with this paper. He comes to the conclusion, it would be assumed here that the best strategy for winning this game, for correctly deceiving, would be to try to provide answers that would naturally be given by a man. But he does spend a bit of time on this question of what if the machine just spouted out, you know, nonsense or, or or whatever? How would the interrogator deal with that? It's also a loaded
0: suggestion, and I think mm-hmm. Turing is fairly well aware with it by bringing up this notion of maybe the machine's best success would be by imitating behavior of whether it be the the man or the or the woman A or or B X Y whichever position. I mean, I guess the machine's position is to is to deceive right so Mm -hmm. whether it's a or b it's in the position of x it's in that position of deceiving the human so to speak to win in that way and i suppose that what's interesting right is that one thing that he doesn't necessarily state outright but maybe brings up with Mm -hmm. this notion of imitating behavior in a natural way is the very fact that machines could be sort of pre-fed all the information of the stereotypical modes of identifying men and women for a given society for a given time even for a given like language for a given region right because these things can vary even if there may be obviously with larger macroscopic structures like patriarchy but there could be even more molecular levels of sort of presumptions about what constitutes whether it be like we're talking about with with coop we could have even like a psychoanalytically trained you know machine with the feminine yeah. masculine position and but it's obviously it doesn't have to be that nuanced it could yeah. obviously take into into play what is it that what are the stereotypes that are going to be grabbed on by a and b and manipulated by the deceiver X, right? Or the truth teller, like, how are they going to try to assert their, their compliance with the gender they're trying to convince? Cause they're each trying to convince, but in different ways. Right. So yeah. what's the lever, the Archimedean lever to kind of convince that, Oh, this is what a man, that's what a man would say. Right. Yeah. Like it's very interesting because that, as you said, it, it begins the the game begins with human behavior and psychology, yeah. and also cultural assumptions and stereotypes. All of that, which are obviously, they can also be highly individual, right? Because
3: totally, like, you know, as people have their own biases or or presumptions about <laughs> about other people that may or may not be particularly accurate. As we of, of,
0: of respecting the 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 given quote unquote, you know, status quo established values totally uh, of conformity or not. I think that that's where there are these there are a lot of these variables in the background that I know Turing doesn't necessarily bring out in stark relief, but at least intimates in terms of the machine imitating behavior that might be natural for the sex that it's supposed to be. Simulating and dissimulating.
3: I love the fact that you bring up this the the psychoanalytic because obviously this isn't in the paper, but one of the first I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but one of the first quote unquote successful Turing test machines was or that proclaimed to have passed the Turing test was in the 60s and it had Basically what it did is it would play the role of, of a therapist. Um, yeah. The analyst, you, the, anal- the yeah. analytic
0: position. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And you would tell your problems to it and it would have, it was a very simple piece of software. It would say, how's your day? And you would type out what happened. How do you feel about that? Do you like this? And it would take certain keywords, you know, it might find a name or certain nouns. It was very, obviously it was the sixties. So it was super simple, but, People even developed, and it would just ask questions. It wouldn't say anything, not really. But people would develop like a genuine emotional connections to it. They were convinced that it was a person, that it couldn't be a machine. They they felt that they had developed a kind of relationship with it. So I find it interesting, obviously kind of an aside, but I find it interesting that that is the first example of... Many cited as the first example of a quote-unquote successful passing of the game by changing the game. This is the key kind of to what I was trying to to suss out in terms of the,
0: the naturally imitating. Because what this machine you're talking about is latching onto is rather than going full deception like I'm talking about, it's going into a, an even deeper, more latent ulterior deception by merely latching on to the perform narcissism that we all sort of engage ourselves in. And that narcissism is sort of fools us into thinking that we we aren't just kind of screaming into the void, so to speak, right? Yeah. That, that we're not just reflecting off of the analytic position. Yeah, we become just, convinced. Just, we're, we're, we're not, we're, not, right? we're not just facing our own desire. We're not. We're not just looking into the lake that we're actually that there actually is someone behind the the screen. I think that that makes sense in terms of. On the other hand, that isn't quite the imitation game, though, no, right? Because because it's not about whether whether the person is tricked narcissistically into thinking that the other to whom they are sharing <laughs> their their desires and their their anxieties or whatever is a human behind the glass it's based on this question of gender so at least in its in its initial form as you said it changed the game it changed the rules of the game the criteria of the game the parameters such that it's about can we get the human to think that the machine is a human but that's not quite how turing poses the question no not at all which he probably which he could have he totally could have yeah but he doesn't.
3: I mean, it is obviously, you know, very tragic that for many reasons that he never really got to see the legacy of this paper because the quote unquote Turing test as this kind of cultural object is is very different and perpetually, whenever it gets referenced, it's always a slightly different yeah. test that people seem to be referencing and none of them ever really map onto the test that that he originally proposes.
0: And I do think it's it's, it's interesting you bring up his untimely death because it, it may go without saying, but maybe it perhaps should be said that, you know, what was done to him by the British government or whatnot, right. Oh yeah. Uh, due to his, this allegedly this fear of his homosexuality, somehow making him more of a compromised agent, which led to his, at least accelerated his untimely death you know i think that that perhaps that that i'll say inner conflict you know the fact that it was illegal to be homosexual in in Mm -hmm. britain and he was entrusted with some of the highest you know intelligence and all this this compromised position that he found himself in is what gets him to think about the invitation game in these terms of gender yeah that's that's perhaps why it is phrased this way and not whether or not a machine can emulate a human successfully which is such it's such a mu- much more of a general generic kind of whitewashed or just it doesn't have any it itself is a kind of empty form even if the the jitter rolls are are empty but it, but it but it reduces a binary down to a kind of well, I guess it's it's really a Trinity right because it's machine man woman. It reduces that Trinity down to a just a binary of human non human him situating the game in terms of gender at least to me is significant in terms of the the kind of the fate that he ended with, so just thought we would get that out of the way now because it is kind of a part of his biography and maybe that's that's not a very philosophical thing to do to read his biography into the posing of this sophisticated question but as you say the game gets kind of uh sometimes simplified or reduced or or changed mm-hmm. often to merely being simulating humanity where it's it's not quite posed in that way
3: no it's it's not well and i guess that that segues really well into the third section, which is okay, on yeah. the very nature of the machine. And he he has this great line in the middle. He, he says, quote, we wish to exclude from the machines men born in the usual manner, pointing out the fact that from a certain perspective, man is a machine, right? right. A biological machine. And so we have to start by excluding a certain kind of machine mm-hmm. before we can even begin to talk about what it is that we're trying to interrogate you know
0: that reconnects to that cartesian legacy that I was talking about la matrie with man machine and mm-hmm. even in in sort of descartes you know he's thinking of animals as these little machines even though somehow man is excluded from that and i think that's why turing comes back to it and wants to collapse the man-animal separation even if yeah. he he keeps some some room but he finds much more of a division between the organic and organic right so there's a certain sense where he's he's inserting himself obliquely into this this tradition
3: he makes reference to a a present interest in quote thinking machines that the paper is on and so you know obviously he he feels that he's engaging in a discussion that's already begun (laughs) And sort of, but he's he wants to start from a very basic level. And so he, he makes all of these steps back. But he even points out that we can't even say a machine constructed by man, because what is man but a machine constructed by man, just in a particular way. And so um I like his his little it's it's quite a short little section, but him poking and prodding at these little holes and other other interesting um points uh at which this this problem that we're posing you know is perhaps not a particularly adequate one
0: the other little thing in part three uh just to bring forth is mm-hmm. this idea that it's not necessarily that a machine need win the game every time yeah or that it's that it needs to make a good showing. That's this kind of criterion for passing the Turing test, if we might want to call that being successful yeah. in the imitation game, rather than being perfect at it. Which right. I think I think doesn't necessarily make sense in terms of the of the parameters of the game. But but yeah. this idea of of a digital machine making a good showing.
3: Well, and I think that that connects very much to a point that he makes near the end of the essay. When he mm-hmm. talks about the necessity of learning. And he points out the fact that that it can't be quote unquote correct a hundred percent of the time, because if a behavior happens a hundred percent of the time, it can't be learned or unlearned. Right. Right. It has there has to be a variance. And because people are variable, right. This um, is why it, I think there needs to be some randomness or some has to be in the there machine. Has to be. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and that's another from a different angle, another sort of hole poked in, in the idea. But, and then I guess we get to section four where he spends quite a long time on sort of outlining digital computers and sort of what they are. And obviously, you know, two, a lay person in the 50s, they may have you know, heard of digital computers, but the concept itself might be a bit foreign compared to today, when I think most people have, you know, a pretty decent basic idea of what it is a computer does. But I do like that he he again goes back to this sort of human analogy where you have a a person sitting at a desk with a a paper and you're just giving them instructions and they have to be very precise, they have to be exact, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that we necessarily need to um, go in depth on, on this section beyond, you know, he introduces the notion of programming as creating a set of instructions for a computer to execute. You have conditionals, you have loops, etc. Coop
0: and I when we were discussing this, we were it was interesting to talk, whether it be in human terms or more abstract terms about store, executive unit, control. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if Coop you had anything you wanted to say on that score, specifically related to anything that we had discussed, or if that was more of just kind of this this more passing interest
2: to me this is maybe one of the most interesting things to think about is how does memory or the store how does that relate to thinking mm-hmm. and i might even bring in the unconscious here to differentiate what a machine does or even what thinking is for a machine and a man like maybe it's not the same thing does a machine have and unconscious does it have is it impacted by time that's maybe the most interesting question because right for a human right like even our concept of what a man or woman would be is going to be impacted by the past and probably not so much the future but possibly right there's the element of history which brings in that to me is maybe where the question of okay Thinking for a human and thinking for a machine would be two different things. Maybe we should divide them out, right? Because and that perhaps goes to this: what is it? It's not solid state. It's it. A discreet, what is the discrete state? Discrete state, right? Mm-hmm. Because one would presume that the machine has a discrete state, right. Versus the human being does not. What what? Would, it's what continuous. Would that yeah, it's a continuous, right? Yeah, and that's where this kind of You might even think this kind of dialectical process between the human is trying to project based on its past experience that data set, you know, I suppose refer to it as a data set of history that not only is divided amongst the unconscious, there's an unconscious aspect, and then there's a
0: conscious aspect. I don't know. There's I a think... pre-conscious aspect, right? There's something, Right, yeah. There's, I mean, I there's suppose... Me- but... There's memory we can recall and bring to mind right. immediately versus what is, like, repressed, right? Yeah, so we have to make these certain analogies.
3: This reminds me of the opening of Bergson's What's it, matter in memory, right? I mean, he spends a bunch of time on... He uses extensive and intensive, and he's using slightly different definitions than... I think Deleuze uses them but um if I remember correctly it's been a bit since I since I read it but if I remember correctly essentially extensive map is is one's continuous and one is 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 discrete essentially and he makes some arguments on on the transformation from the continuous into the discrete in the production of what we might traditionally call consciousness which is interesting cuz that's ex- exactly what happens in a computer, right? When when you, the continuous, as I was talking about earlier, you know, this continuous charge of electrons becomes converted into either a zero or a one, which becomes discrete. It is very interesting to ask what it is. And I think there are all sorts of interesting phenomena that people point to in like modern... Modern machine, let me use the broadest terms possible. Modern sort of machine learning systems where they try to analogize. There have been interesting little things written on, you know, hypothetically, you know, finding dreams within certain image generation processes or whatever. Because the issue with neural nets, which is perhaps most widely used, is that they are much more of a black box. Than other learning systems, you know, it's very difficult if you if you want to isolate a certain part of the network, you could, you know, and say, what is this part? Let's say we're doing a classic example of, you know, transforming handwriting, handwritten numbers into symbolic numbers, right? Well, what if you isolate a part of the neural net in the middle and you ask, like, well is this identifying like curves in the handwriting is it identifying straight lines and then assembling you know into numbers it's very difficult to answer that question and i think that in the same way you know a lot of neuroscience is about tackling this very difficult question of of how does one aspect of the brain and how do these individual incidents within the brain map onto later behavior, Turing makes the argument that you do need a learning process, right? In yeah. order to fulfill this criteria for, for the game, I would argue that that learning process is a kind of memory, right? Because it it has to, it's, it's a series of events, like regardless of whether- Some know, type of feedback loop between yeah, input exactly. and output and totally.
2: repetition. Apprenticeship.
3: Yeah.
0: apprenticeship apprenticeship training I mean that's in 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 difference repetition I mean that's the word that Deleuze is associating with learning is apprenticeship because those two words are much more etymologically linked in French right apprentissage and apprend this apprehension this active apprehension this training that that goes into it that could be analogized to to memory. I think very much so. I brought in the pre conscious coop not to like correct you, but to think that if the machine could draw upon through operations, you know, a store that it had and, and bring it to mind, quote unquote, yeah. right to bring it to present, which yeah. could be analogized to to consciousness. Then that would be like us accessing pre conscious anything that's like that we can recall you know without presumably any delay that's pretty mm. conscious right but but unconscious if we got to work through our fucking feelings and <laughs> repressed memories and shit right like, or if it just extrudes itself through through our slips like a bug in reverse or something yeah. right you right. know that's a little bit different and that's why you said whether or not a machine could even be said to have a, an unconscious i mean that could be maybe maybe the parapraxis would be the bug like Griffin I, brought up earlier.
3: Yeah, I, I I like that because of course, the way that a machine responds to a bug, it tells you something about the machine, something mm-hmm. that sometimes you might not be able to know about it without, yeah. through other means of engaging with it. It's like so, a symptom, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, so that is- That's I, good. Th- that's very interesting, I like that a lot.
2: This is maybe too big of a question, but I'm just thinking about and specifically with, like, C or C++, Mm -hmm. could we draw an analogy between the, like, include statements, std, I I forget what they are, it's like, sys.io, or I forget even the fucking...
3: Yeah, standard, uh, including packages. io, etc.,
2: like, I studio.sys, or whatever the fuck, those includes that are sort of acting as those, almost like, I mean, would that be, like, you might say the functions that are built into like things that our brainstem controls, like involuntary breathing, they're and in. di- digestion, they're functions that get called by the like higher order of the machine, but they are sort of embedded within its own, like this other substrate level, I suppose.
3: I think especially if you think of how a modern computer works, right? It has an operating system. Even if you're not doing anything with the computer, if the computer's just sitting there, even when it's on, it's still, it's pinging to make sure it still has an internet connection, it might be scanning for Bluetooth, it's doing a bunch of little things in the background.
2: Maybe BIOS would even be better, the better analogy than like the programming language Mm -hmm. of, of these these include instruction sets. Yeah,
3: yeah. With the with the includes, I almost you could almost see the includes like the nervous system, right? Connecting you're connecting one part, an existing set of codes of both functions and functionalities to another set by by and explicitly making that connection. So if we wanted to follow this sort of biological analogy, I think that that might make more sense. Yeah, um, it might
2: even do to. I don't know if you can do this. We could cut this out if if not, but maybe just to kind of give Taylor an idea of what the include statements are and are, are, are kind of doing mm-hmm. just to like set at least like a minimum. And for the audience too, probably. Is mm-hmm. there a problem? Mm-hmm. You know, not everyone's going to have uh, direct. No, totally. With C yeah. C++.
3: Here, let me, I was talking about that Wikipedia page for the dining philosophers problem, but that has some example C code. So But basically, you know, whenever you're programming, whenever you're writing a piece of software, you know, obviously it's contained within a, you know, it's contained within a file and you might not, you know, if you're doing some kind of mathematical, let's say you're writing a piece of software that takes a certain set of numbers and, you know, does some computation on them. Maybe you're taking an average or whatever it is. Now you could, of course, write out all of the necessary mathematical functions to do all of those averages, but it's likely that someone has already written that kind of software. And a lot of times, whatever language that you're working in might even have those that functionality built in. But if you want to use those other written pieces of software, you need some way of saying, of essentially telling the compiler, which produces the machine code, hey, I want to use something from this. And so you put an include statement and the name of the thing says that I'm going to use something from this. And then later in the software, you can call like, say, math.average or something like that. and you feed it two numbers and it'll give you the average so you don't have to write your own function so i guess maybe that's a, a good explanation of or, you know of 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 what you're talking about and all you know not just c but all kinds of software need some way of you know essentially segmenting you don't want all of your software in one massive file especially if you have multiple people working on the same project etc. And so this way of segmenting, they're usually called like packages, or mm-hmm. there are a bunch of different nomenclature for it. But right. um, this way of segmenting your software into little bits is an important, especially in when you're working on larger code bases or more modern projects. Um,
2: so Taylor, you can see this example I've got up on the screen. See my, like, our include statement has stdio.h. So that basically yeah. stands for standard input output, right? And then and th- this is just kind of syntax. And then the, like, actual thing that does the bulk of the actual action is this printf statement. Which was, this is basically instructing the computer print hello world. So this okay. would print hello world just wow. one time. Another thing that I wanted to mention, interestingly, regarding this... I guess this kind of differentiation between how a human thinks and how a machine might think would mm-hmm. be Taylor and I, the last three episodes we've done have been on Nietzsche and Deleuze. And one important thing that Nietzsche talks about is this, this act of forgetting that the kind of human, and that would maybe go to the psychical apparatus of repressing these traumatic memories or whatever, like dealing with the traces. Of, uh, I don't know, you might even go to like, in, right, intensity of experience is mm-hmm. another question that might also branch off from this discussion is like, can a machine experience an intensity the way that a, a human being can because of the digital, like the binary sort of logic system or what have you?
0: I would just add, I, I would think active forgetting wouldn't necessarily be repression since repression is not active. I would think of uh, working through repression and and being able to, whether we call it sublimate or use some terminology, which isn't really right. If we were able to dissolve what is keeping the repression as a psychical function, right? Expending that energy on repression. If we are able to work through the analytic process, connect up those memories with their associative links and bring it to consciousness and abreact the affect belonging to it yada yada which for freud economically is going to free up that psychical energy i think that that's that's closer to what nietzsche means by active forgetting because there's many ways of not just forgetting but as as we said repressing which is also a i think a function of of health in freud's model Mm -hmm. and i think nietzsche would agree with that too but this is I think it's just a, a, a little bit of a distinction. Yeah, anyway. no,
2: that's good. That's good. I, I think what's interesting too here would be like the idea of the function versus like, let's say we have our entire program written out, mm-hmm. every single thing we want executed, like your example, or just a moment ago, Griffin, where like whatever, our code is like super long because we basically yeah. have just used variable like if then logic to produce our right. program versus if we define a function within our program, then we can be a lot more efficient with our code. Mm -hmm. So then we would just call that code. So that might be an interesting way to sort of draw this analogy between kind of what you were describing, Taylor, and the way that programming works, right? What if you were actually aware of all of you and in control of all of your processes in your body like that would be a nightmare you know what i mean yeah. like it actually it's allows us to sort of to actually live because we're not constantly thinking about all of these things give me a little bit of leeway here but uh i think it is kind of interesting just the way that you could consider calling these functions versus running through the program yeah. line by line in a sort of sequential way because if i'm not mistaken like your function can be defined you know, wherever again, forgive mm-hmm. me, it's been so long since I've done programming. You're fine. <laughs> but like it can be located sort of anywhere within the code as long as you're calling the right identification for that particular function.
3: Yeah, as long as it C is particularly annoying about this, but as long as you you have to declare your function right. and define it, and you have to do both correctly. And as long as you do both of them, then yeah, you can call it wherever you want. There are a lot of <laughs> That's a whole different yeah, yeah. thing.
2: But <laughs> Maybe <laughs> but I'm getting into the weeds, but I just thought it no, was no. interesting.
3: Talking about forgetting, there is a kind of classical kind of problem in pretty much any machine learning application related to the importance of quote unquote forgetting or something similar to it. Because let's go back to the numbers example that I was talking about. You're, you feed it in handwritten pictures of handwritten numbers. It has to tell you what number it is. We can imagine, let's say that we graph its accuracy over time. And as you feed it more and more data, depending on what machine learning model you're working with, it will, in theory, get better and better. But it will often find what are generally called local maxima because it's operating in a, with a neural net at least, it's operating in this massive multi dimensional space, right? where you can have, if you you think back to calculus, when you're finding the minima and maxima of certain functions, when when a function um, changes from, when its slope changes from being positive to negative or negative to positive, if this machine learning process may have found a, may have found itself in a kind of local maxima where it's performing pretty well, But if it makes little deviations from that behavior, it's just going to get worse and worse. However, there may be a better maxima that's quite far away from it. But if you don't have some way of teaching it to forget, to try something, even though this is working really well, and it seems like every time I make little changes to it, it just gets worse. So maybe this is the best that it can do you have to let it try well what if i do something completely different and go over here and that just so might might end up you know giving it the capacity to continue to learn beyond a simple local minima and it, that's really as you can imagine that's really hard and there are a lot of different approaches to attempting to solve that while maintaining overall performance yada yada but i do think that that's interesting and i You know, to think about how, you know, it isn't a simple linear accumulation of information. And the more information, the better it gets, which I think is how a lot of people like to talk about machine learning. But that's not actually how it works. And there can be, you know, bad, and we might call it bad information that if it doesn't learn to forget it, it's going to get stuck. And so perhaps you could tie that all the way back to our own neural processes and our own ability to get stuck in certain you know like a symptom states
0: like a symptom right yeah like a psychoanalytic symptom yeah that's what mm-hmm. Guattari calls a black hole though i mean right, it, right. yeah, yeah that be, too yeah yeah totally. it can be much worse than the symptom
2: i mean wow. that is also super interesting given the way like these machines computing programming mm-hmm. and loops and repetition is such a fascinating aspect of that discussion, too, especially when it comes to like this would be more so right the the repetition of the symptom, right? Like, <laughs> and it's sort of yeah. being not necessarily in our uh, I guess, like in our higher cognitive state, right? Like we're not aware necessarily that we're repeating this this loop or whatever this feedback loop
3: right, right. you you think you're you know you're just doing normal behavior and it's only over a long period of time that you can see for the machine you can see it kind of spiraling around this little spot that it's stuck in or or you know in human behavior you can see the ways in which each part kind of feeds back into the total behavior so you kind of have to have to take a, a broader perspective on it to be able to identify what's going on i guess and how it's different from other behavior We're still in section section four, right?
0: We were actually kind of working through it if you think about
3: it. Yeah, yeah, we we were. No, that's I mean, we've already
0: we've already actually like tackled all the sections to a certain degree, but we have um, I mean, we've touched on them at least.
3: I like him pointing out that the difference, it's not possible to determine the difference between variable behavior and random behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's a random number generator or just pulling off of the digits of pi you know yeah they produce a similar effect which i think sort of ties ties a bit into in a broad way into into sort of the undecidability of, of certain or the inconceivability of, of certain things
0: it's ironic that pi is called an irrational number <laughs> <laughs> right
3: so,
0: right right You know, that's bringing a kind of human metaphor so to speak mm-hmm. with its yeah. own you know bring in you know, inner, inner Foucault here, if you, if you like, um, I'll save that for another time. There's part five, which seems to develop more on part four or. Yeah.
3: Sort of. He's Yeah. It's more the theoretical, it. like, well, because part, part four is kind of the, is the, a lot more like this is physically what a computer does and kind of how it works. Part five is basically just sort of the extreme basics of sort of, the sort of mathematical side of comp sci and and of like you know discrete state machines and what it means yada 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 he's basically using the analytical engine instead of like he doesn't choose to use a turing machine as an example which mm. is normally normally when this stuff is taught you use you use a turing machine so i find it funny that turing doesn't use his own example but the whole point is that they're universal. They all can be, which is I, I in and of itself quite an interesting mathematical property is, you know, there's this notion of, of Turing completeness is normally what people call it, but basically there are theoretically infinite number, maybe not infinite, but, you know, there are many possible, you know, programming languages or ways of constructing discrete state machines right? We don't have to use electricity. He has an aside on this. Yeah, Um, There was a great example that somebody did. I saw a video on it. It was in a museum in Britain, but they actually did a machine learning process with just matchboxes. They made a computer out of dominoes. The importance Mm -hmm. is not electricity. It's that there are discrete states. And it turns out that as long as whatever discrete state machine or computer language or whatever it is as long as it has a certain set of properties or it's able to do a certain set of things a very small set of things they can all they're all equivalent you can map one onto the other and so something is said to be turing complete if it can do everything that a turing machine can do and it turns out that a turing machine can do everything that a computer can do, a Turing machine can run Minecraft. Uh, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, you would be quite a quite a quick little Turing machine, or you'd have a very slow game of Minecraft. But I, I've always found that a very interesting property of of machines is is that they are truly universal. And you have a lot of very funny examples. Um, there's a an esoteric programming language. That's the official term for them an esoteric programming language called BrainFuck, which is a programming language made entirely of, I believe it's six or eight characters. It's just like plus, minus, equals, open bracket, close bracket. And I think that's it, right? It's just six characters. And that language is Turing complete. Every single computer program can can be written in just those six characters, which is kind of crazy to think about. Considering the sheer complexity of behavior that that's possible out of out of computers, part five was mostly just introducing that universality and sort mm-hmm. of equivalence of of all computers, which I guess does bolster our original question. can machines think? Because if we can prove that one machine can think, we can prove that all machines can think in that kind of way. But, uh, yeah. and so, yeah, and then that gets to definitely the longest, far and away the longest section of the paper, which is like subdivided into nine different sections, I think it's
0: the it's the objections. He's, he's <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah, Con- it's, contrary views on the main question. And, and we
0: we've touched on some of these, um,
3: yep, definitely.
0: The theological objection, which is kind of based on a, a type of arrogance inherited from culture. Mm-hmm. from scripture from narcissism this was partly where I, I, I drew upon the and he goes into greater detail but this this notion of sort of man being separate from the the animal kingdom which is why I brought up Descartes when he thinks of animals as machines and yet doesn't go as far which is why the next logical step of La Matri is like well I mean you went that far you opened the fucking door you opened the box <laughs> right uh man machine, right? Um, mm-hmm. so there sure. are some ethical, interesting problems with you know, Descartes thinking of your pet dog as a machine, and it's like, well, animal cruelty becomes it's a non-problem mm-hmm. in that sense. Not to say that animal cruelty has been done away with by it just takes on a, a new form and takes on a different ethical significance. If machines can't feel pain, and that is itself a presumption because i know elsewhere i think in the in our collection the paper that precedes this i forget the title of it but turing goes into like training machines through through pain pleasure through through like yeah. reward systems which he yeah, even mentions in this punishment. he does but, in the but, but he go, but he actually specifically says like pain and pleasure in the previous essay leading up to this in, in this volume and so You know training a a machine through you know we could say punishment reward but he he uses he uses pain pain pleasure as the series which comes very freudian right because we can think about the pleasure principle the reality principle blah 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 i think it's interesting too right that this notion obviously we we think quote unquote machines don't feel pain because they're specifically inorganic but as you as we 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 brought up at the beginning like man is a very specific special kind of machine perhaps Mm -hmm. you know and guattari call man i believe they phrase it someone as like the eternal custodian of the machines of the universe or something like this but Uh, what's preventing the custodian from being engineered for turing he engages the theological question much longer than i thought he would because he's kind of like Listen, I'm not going to really take much stock into (laughs) this kind of theological claptrap, but, and I can almost see see him like in the margins, like seeing as my fellow Englishmen are at least overtly, ostensibly good Christian fellows or whatnot. And he does bring up some cultural differences. Like there's, it's not universal that every human has a soul throughout different religions, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know what scripture he's thinking of when he brings up islam or whether or not that is a actual tenet from the quran or if that's more of a like a teaching but one can imagine conversely like the dogma in the catholic church when you think of like the absurdity of like every sperm is sacred and and what that entails right as though souls inhered in spermatozoa this question of thinking equals having a soul i think if i'm right i mean obviously there's more nuances in there and a part of it is attacking some hubris but it does end on this kind of note about thinking having a soul and he kind of proposes like why can't we imagine a god endowing an elephant with a soul
3: right exactly right?
0: like aren't we like diminishing his on uh, his he uses the his and that's yeah, still his power
3: kind
0: of, <laughs> that's still a kind of verbal um inheritance which is why i do it so so easily Mm -hmm. but we we imagine you know god being omnipotent in the christian tradition right and being male which Mm -hmm. is interesting because we can think of an imitation game of you know god being woman right being beyond all those categories but in any case you know turing's like look this question of of soul is actually a little bit Slippery and it starts to starts to collapse on itself.
3: He mostly argues that they're just that people making this argument are just grasping for they don't like the idea of machines thinking. And so they're finding some excuse. But he points out that you know, I really like this because he brings it again back to the creation of children, right? Where we create children and under. If we assume that people have souls, we're creating a thing that has a soul. And so what is the difference, you know, um, that we're not becoming God by creating something that has a soul or we always are, right? And that ties into his second objection that he calls the heads in the sand objection, which is, I think, a very funny (laughs) way of describing it. But he says, and I think it ties in, I I like his description here. He just says, we like to believe that man is in some subtle way superior to the rest of creation. Mm -hmm. It is best if he can be shown to be necessarily superior, for then there is no danger of him losing his commanding position. He argues essentially that this is the same kind of objection as the sole objection just more generalized even though that's
0: the uh that would have been the modus operandi at the time notice the gendered language
3: right? yeah totally not
0: only of god as he which is very as still with us today but man philosophical subject man as as he right so yeah the the synecdoche, capital m man if you will yeah. of of the particular standing in for the quote-unquote universal for the species right. When I was bringing up this notion of history, for example, or the, you know what I mean?
2: That's a prejudice that is determined by history, right? Does a machine, what's a machine's relationship to history in this sort of context in terms of under, I raise, understanding I raise, or, or thinking or, you know, thinking and understanding maybe even different? You know, can a machine understand and can machine think? Is that a different question? I don't even know. Mm-hmm. That's
0: like opening up a whole other can of worms. I've raised my machines different. They know better than than to do that. But that's also a good question, Coop, this question of understanding and and thinking, because I do think that Turing seems to take it for granted that at least functionally, machines understand, right? Because he'll talk about the teacher is giving orders and there's built-in instructions. When the teacher gives a, says something, the teacher's always right, right? This is built in, this kind of, again, this, there's no deceiving teacher right that gives a command do homework that's an instruction so there's an understanding that's built in but i know that you're kind of questioning understanding understanding which recursively could perhaps be possible which could again become another part of the puzzle of of solving this question of of can can machines think
3: yeah it's interesting that because it is a is a a kind of um when a professor that of mine was talking about machine learning, or he was talking about evolutionary algorithms, but it applies to machine learning generally, it is a kind of tautological process where whatever fits your criteria will continue to fit your criteria, yeah. and it will continue to, to reproduce. And I do think that that is a kind of recursive movement. You know, recursion as a or induction as a kind of logical movement is always interesting. I don't know if, have you, my understanding is that induction as a proof technique came about out of computer science as a new way of generating proofs that didn't exist before. I don't know if either of you are familiar with mathematical induction. I know
0: there's three ways of of doing proofs, right? Mm -hmm. And I'd have to double check and see this, but they're, was for a long time there was only two ways right Mm -hmm. from what i know the proof by induction that you're talking about was with the first proof solved with the help of computers and yeah 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 yeah. the proof that i know because there's direct proof right proof through axioms there's the proof through contradiction which i suppose would be ad absurdum or something like this right sure but then there's the proof by induction and what you're talking about is the famous four color map theory right that, that the yeah. map however complex could be shaded in with four colors such that no one color was touching itself on its borders right so that you know france and germany aren't both blue or some shit right and this was a problem that even when my dad was in grad school this was in this would have been in uh, the early 60s mm-hmm. even then he had a roommate that like Spent all of his time on this shit. And, and it was eventually proved around yeah. the time when my dad was finishing his PhD, it was eventually proved with the help of computers because it took a lot of manpower, quote unquote. Yeah. Right. It took a lot of of calculations to actually exhaust the variations of this. This also, I think, is a part of the puzzle of, of cam machines think, because at the very least, they could provide assistance to thinking to an insolvable problem or at least a potentially insolvable problem or a problem that would have taken someone's probably written out there like here's you know one to you know 10 to the fucking however many calculations necessary and you know because even turing uses that like about the um know if you had 60 men working for the next what 50 years or something and they (laughs) didn't throw away any piece of paper they just like kept doing these calculations it's kind of like that right it would take a kind of uh it would take the kind of manpower and again I'm using this like in an interesting way to talk about what machines are doing right Mm -hmm. to have solved it but yes this was and I assume there are other proofs by induction now through yeah computer assistance.
3: I think I misspoke it seems like it was it was proof by induction was like fully formalized by boole who's sort of a free sort of computer science um i've always found it such an interesting way of 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 thinking and of of proving things cuz recursion when you're programming is a, is a very um whenever you introduce it as a concept to programmers it's very confusing because it's it's not a normal way of thinking about how to iterate over a, a process. It's not the way that we tend to think about it, but it works really, really well. And so, I guess I just I've always found it um, I found it interesting to think about how it is how how it operates differently from a traditional repetition, and how it operates in the same way. But perhaps that's a, a different discussion and sort of tangential to the. I mean I have and a, a repetition. Yeah, I have a galaxy
2: brain thing that a computer uh-huh. is like a a computer is a time machine and the way that it compresses the time scales like what Taylor was just referring to in terms of you know 60 humans working for so long or your example Griffin of mm-hmm. running Minecraft off of you know whatever <laughs> non-digital right like yeah. it can be done but the question is time right yeah. like that's the sort of key thing here and I think that's Super interesting. And I think Turing even mentions something about this within the text itself. But I also think that, evolutionarily speaking, and maybe this would even go back to Bergson, I think it's really fascinating the way that just modernity and acceleration, the computer aiding in these time scales being compressed, and the way the data can be compressed and yeah. evolution sort of speeds up and accelerates in this kind of strange way.
3: Yeah. Well, and I think that it would, it would, it would would probably be good to, to connect it back to Marx, right. Where, where the very, the very tendencies of capitalist acceleration and of the capitalist division of labor towards taking, you know, what are traditionally, you know, if you think during the industrial revolution, you had all of these disparate, you know, crafts and arts and whatever that all had various you know qualities and every single piece was unique in some sort of way and it becomes standardized, it becomes accelerated and it becomes divided right into to think about programming into individual functions, you know yeah um that can be carried out by any Universal agent, the universal agent of the worker. And so I think in this way it's interesting to think about obviously, Modern computers are are very much a product of, of the capitalist economy, yeah. and I think that they reflect its necessary operations perhaps in it, in an interesting way. I don't yeah. know if that connects exactly. No, totally.
2: How I was thinking about this is like mm-hmm. a process of deterritorialization, re-territorialization in terms of nature or whatever, preferring the more deterritorialized forms for whatever reason that would be. I don't know. Is that like efficiency of Maybe that goes to efficiency of energy and like the universe just being like this engine of efficiency. I don't know. That doesn't, I don't know if mm. that necessarily maps, but there's something to that process where, like, you know what I mean? Because obviously you go from Babbage and mm. this me- mechanical computational system to obviously we're at the threshold of something like quantum computing becoming a reality, mm. right? Like that's a deterritorialization of. The whole process of computation itself, right, going from this this very kind of simple and discrete process to this more open-ended process.
3: When you think about quantum computing in specific, there is this kind of massive, we might call it a a sort of potential massive deterritorialization on the horizon. Because I don't need to get into the specifics of it, because it's it's kind of complicated and long to explain. But quantum computing essentially breaks all encryption completely. And there are people who are trying to work on a kind of quantum encryption, but it does I'm skeptical of that idea. It's more like it's more like a desperate grasp for a kind of encryption, but there's no indication that quantum would have any particular properties of it. But
2: what do you think about that in relation to this kind of axiom of information wanting to be free?
3: Right. Uh, well, and, In terms and, of and,
2: encryption, right? Because there's no way to hide the data. If everyone can access the data, then that can ex- also accelerate right. change, Well,
3: and, experimentation, and the, et cetera. Yeah. Well, and the question, it then becomes, because there's a difference, right? In order to decrypt something, obviously you need a way of breaking the encryption, but you do need physical access, right? And so it makes me wonder if it will, if, You know, as intellectual property laws and and all sorts of other things continue to be, you know, very important, especially for modern, the intellectual property of, you know, Microsoft is just a bunch of software that can be easily copied. If you got the source code, you know, you have all their intellectual property. It's very easy to copy. And so protecting it is really, really important for Microsoft. So it, it makes me wonder if there will be. Almost an acceleration of more physical protocols, preventing some kind of physical access. You know, yeah, like um, a
2: Butlerian Jihad, stuff, like Mentats themselves, <laughs> right. right? Like, yeah, yeah. Bo- there bottleneck- it is. There it is. <laughs> bottleneck- <laughs> Mark the timestamp. No, go ahead. Intentionally bottlenecking it through the yeah. organic substrate for a security purpose. That's mm-hmm. a really that's a super totally. interesting tangent to come up with. I like that a lot.
3: Obviously, you know, we don't know. And it's still, it doesn't, you need a quantum computer. You can kind of stave this off because basically you need a quantum computer with a certain number of qubits to break an encryption. And it's actually a one-to-one, like AES 256 is a 256-bit encryption scheme. It's what most things run on. It's really good. It's pretty fast. And using a modern computational Techniques, even if you arranged all the atoms in the universe into a hypothetical computer and let it run until the heat death of the universe, it would not break (laughs) AES 256. Interesting. But if you have a 256 qubit quantum computer, it's not instant. It has to do with what's called complexity or the O notation of of a problem in computer science. It basically has to do with how a solution scales to the size of its input, right? Interesting, okay. So that's the, fascinating. Yeah, it it modern encryption is basically it's O factorial. The bigger the input, it scales in terms of how long it's going to take at a factorial level. So it blows up insanely fast and that's how you get this crazy, you know, gotcha. whole universe okay. computer Oh, thing. that's super interesting. But it, with quantum algorithms, because it it basically has to do with logarithms, right? All of encryption is based on logarithms. And it's exponents and and logarithms. It's really easy to calculate exponents. It's a lot harder to calculate logarithms. It takes longer. And so that's basically what whenever you're doing an end-to-end encryption, basically, the two computers can share some data with each other that allows them, through massive exponents to arrive at the same number which becomes your your encryption key pretty quickly but due to them storing local they have local data on them <laughs> the math of it is is kind of weird but if someone is intercepting their communications they each have local data that they're not sharing with each other but they combine they can combine their local data and arrive at the same number and so somebody listening in would not receive enough information because they don't have one of the two numbers to actually calculate anything and so you have to guess these you have to guess these logarithms on the numbers that you see sent and that takes an insane amount of time but there are quantum algorithms that can calculate these logarithms at a much lower O complexity. I think it's like I think it's like n log n. Although I I don't remember, which is pretty fast. That's a really good complexity. It's still gonna take a little while though, and so you need the bit size. And I think the biggest quantum computer is like eighty some odd bits. So we've still got some time. <laughs> and you also need, <laughs> you know, so you could go we 80,
0: we. We (laughs) the proverbial the royal we
3: the royal we you could just go AES 512 AES 124. You know, if you if you increase the bits beyond the current quantum computers, then they won't be able to break it. Because it has to do with how the qubits interact with one another. That's what makes the algorithm work. I don't really understand it beyond that high level because quantum computing, I have I know some people who are more familiar with it but it kind of goes over my head a bit beyond that eventually at the very least all the encryption all the AES-256 encryption from the past will be broken I do wonder what ramifications that'll be now the issue is of course even when it's broken There aren't very many quantum computers and you have to hold, you have to use like liquid nitrogen or I think liquid helium. You have to hold them at super low temperatures. So they're insanely expensive and they're never going to, some people seem convinced that there's going to be some magic technology that allows quantum computers to be more generalizable. But that seems high in the sky thinking, which is quite common in, in the field of computer science, unfortunately, but I, yeah.
0: One one thing, just to, because we've had a a pretty pretty nice adventure, and I know oh we, yeah yeah we could keep going through. I thought I'd open up a question, maybe to to help us like uh, orient towards the, mm-hmm. the outro, which was if Turing begins with this question, can machines think? But sets it aside and plays with it as we've gone through. It doesn't seem like he questions the fact that machines can learn, and It's an interesting thing to make such a hierarchical distinction between thinking and learning. And I know that for me, at least the operative third term in something like there was a repetition, if I'm simplifying Mm -hmm. between thinking and learning is knowing because for Deleuze, you know, he's opposing his way of understanding learning specifically through challenging orthodox images of thought against something like absolute knowing, right? And that there, there would be a, a kind of almost like a lived distinction. I'm using that's my terminology between learning and knowing or knowledge. And so, you know, the question of whether or not a, you know, computer can know something seems very easy because it goes back to what we kind of talked about with with store executive control, right? I mean, like, it could be reformulated in those terms, right? As you were talking about in terms of algorithms, or in terms mm-hmm. of even just manipulating symbols or, or storage. It's question of learning doesn't seem to be a problem for Turing. He even says like, Oh, I've, I've taught some little child computers, uh, something. I love that. It, it was unorthodox and it maybe didn't work the way I, I thought, but that's maybe the way it needs to be done. It needs to be, mm-hmm. we shouldn't think of a, a, a learning machine as, as an adult, but as a child, right? There's yeah. This just becoming child woven in that would take us another few hours to unpack. I think it's interesting that the problem is, can machines think? Is it not merely, is going through, we, we only went through a couple of these objections and we could go through more mm-hmm. than the objection from consciousness. Whether machines can have consciousness, blah blah blah, right. and whether even that, again, as Cooper said, we just went over um, Deleuze and Nietzsche for three things, and he, even Deleuze to bring how, out how much Nietzsche has this virulent hatred and disgust for consciousness and how it's actually like this mediocre herd mm-hmm. function of humanity. And so, to is it not a residue at least of our, if not the the whole kit and caboodle of human hubris to like somehow say okay machines can know they can learn but think no that's our purview you know what's interesting is simon Don has this interesting line where he talks about he talks about this this kind of difference between man and animals being this kind of relative distinction where he almost says something like and i'd have to check the verbiage and and so i'm going to botch this but he says something like you know man lives exceptionally but thinks ordinarily whereas animals think exceptionally and live ordinarily this becomes then a question of singularities a question of singular points versus ordinary points, I think for him. And I'm wondering if there's not some kind of analogy where the imitation game, the Turing test, is this question making a good show of making the thinking a little bit more of an ordinary point in the series of the machines sort of processes rather than these exceptional singular points. I kind of wove all of that together, but I but I think the main thing I wanted to say is like machines knowing doesn't seem problematic. Machines learning doesn't seem problematic. But machines thinking, why is that still this? Is there not this whole subterranean metaphysics behind what it is to think? Without even getting like Heideggerian about it or, or some shit like that, because even Heidegger's like, problem is we're still not thinking, right? Like even, <laughs> right. you know, if you want to go down that road, it's like, there is a whole tradition where thinking is actually rare for humans. So like for Simon Mondone to kind of take a different tack, but to do it so as to again, connect us back to the, to the rest of the animal kingdom. Um, he's kind of doing an indirect way of, of attacking or of shoring up our modesty. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering about this thing where maybe part of the problem and the reason why he poses the imitation game this way is because as you pointed out in the very first section he's like look if we stick with these metaphys i mean he calls them like he calls he calls them these terms of language but yeah. i'm thinking of metaphysically if we think of these terms of machine thinking man they become these big inflated generalities yeah. that there is a kind of dialectic going on throughout this essay where those distinctions start to fall away at least man and machine from the very beginning but thinking goes through this development that we may have known what thinking was at the beginning when he (laughs) discarded using the term, but at the end, when really Turing is proposing, we need to have these machines that are, that are children. And as he's kind of thinking about the child as as like this um, unformed like cortical organization that can be like, organized arranged in ways in different methods of training apprenticeship it becomes unclear at the end of the essay what exactly if thinking is even an operative term anymore if it if it's not just a foil and why he discards it those are just a series of thoughts if they were thoughts those are just a string of inputs
3: (laughs) a string of inputs i like that I agree completely. And I like how he has this like atomic analogy near the end where he critical mass, right? Yeah. The critical mass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some thoughts are subcritical, right? Yeah. You hear you, you have an input, you know, we have tons of inputs all the time and a lot of them just fizzle out into nothing, but sometimes they don't force,
0: know. they don't force us to think. No, they don't. Say, right.
3: But, yeah. And, and, but you can have a thought or an insight or 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 whatever that can you know create volumes. You know, mm-hmm. you could say when Marx discovered surplus value or or you know whatever you wanna you want to say, but that th- there's this explosiveness to to thought in this in this analogy. And I find it very interesting that um you know even though he's kind of throwing thinking away, he is constantly, as you, as you point out, he's, he's sort of interrogating it and slowly plucking it apart and so perhaps instead of thinking about what you know I, I think it totally ties back to this delusian you know what does it mean versus what does it do if there is a proposal at the end of this or a suggestion at the end of this it is this notion that who cares what it thinks these are creations of us they are children yeah. right and they are whatever it is that they are, they continue to influence us to live, you know, to be a part of our lives, right? This very podcast is only made possible by computers. And, and, and I think we, you know, we are in in a sense, a kind of cybernetic organisms in this way, right? Where these quote unquote children are a part of our lives. And so he, he points out that instead of, of asking these questions of does it think or doesn't it think to act upon them in a certain way to imprint you know our own activities on them through how we interact with them mm-hmm. it is is the more important inquiry perhaps you could easily um even bring that as i was saying you can almost see the computer as a kind of microcosm of Marx's own conceptions of of the motions of the capitalist economy and so you could even give Turing if you if you wanted to a kind of revolutionary practice to say that the liberation of man is the liberation of of the machine and vice versa right i like that. or i yeah maybe i <laughs> <laughs> you know I, obviously i'm kind of spitballing here but i do think that there's there's a way that you could you could draw this kind of uh you could choose to to take this there's a lot You've of heard?
2: interesting things as far as like capitalism as a diagram i mean i've got like a seven layer dip of speculative bullshit that i'm about to drop on you just as a warning <laughs> as a as an opening salvo because this kind of has reoriented my thinking about computation and uh i guess computers algorithms etc would be something like even the The concept or the practice, or I don't even know how to define what multiplication would be, but if you really dive into what multiplication is, it's like a computational algorithm that Mm -hmm. what does it do is it reduces time, even times tables, right? So instead of adding up seven plus seven plus seven plus seven, seven times six or whatever, right? There you go.
3: Yeah. And there's a quicker way. By thinking of it in that way as not a series of additions, but as its own kind of operation, it it that enables you to um come up with faster ways of of doing it. It is that that new category of multiplication, we might say. Anyway, sorry, I keep going. So
2: to build from there to say, okay, what has been the if you go to Hayek, right? Like FA Hayek, what is the problem with? <laughs> central planning in terms of an economy is there's simply too much data for human beings to computate in a reasonable timeline, right? Like humans could theoretically sit down and like figure out price, but price and price signals are a far more efficient way of of calculating and reaching these like equilibriums or alleged equilibriums of mm-hmm supply and demand etc and like what should be what should be produced how much should be produced when should it be produced etc cetera, etc cetera. so i don't know i think that's a really interesting
3: i think it's interesting if you if you want to look at the economy as a kind of to extend your own metaphor here as a kind of grand social computer right in a sense the market has this implicit has whatever you want to call it the axiomatic you might, in computer science terms, call it a heuristic. You know, of that a numerical value that assigns and that that ascribes a a a kind of purpose of of things. It's it instead of you know things simply being a diverse set of human activities. There's this, this objective metric of these are the good activities and these are the bad activities. And that the you know I'm simplifying, but and so. This is what machine learning, the problem, you might, you could call it a problem or you you could not call it a problem, but an essential quality of machine learning is that you need, you can't, or at least our modern methods of machine learning are all about having some kind of objective metric, some kind of heuristic, some kind of numerical assignment that says this is good, this is bad. and that is not necessarily something that is implicit in all human activity. It's something that is unique to the capitalist economy. And so I guess I don't really know where I'm going with this, but I guess I was just thinking about how that ties back into where you're taking this, you know, seeing human activity as this form of computation. And I guess to refute Hayek you would say well humans do compute it already. That's what the economy is and and the problem with Hayek is that he assumes that the fact that the economy does this is a good thing. He takes the economy as you know it is a classical kind of conservatism. You take what is and say that is good and that if if you don't reproduce this good thing In a new way, then whatever changes you want to make to the world are bad, right?
2: I was thinking about this more in terms of, say, your example with encryption, right? Because it goes to the same basic underlying mechanism of the time limitation. As you go up the exponential, whatever aspects of the calculation, right? Then it becomes, then it requires so much more energy and computing power, et mm -hmm. cetera, right? To make the determinations. Or what have you so it's not until you can get to like quantum computing then you could maybe utilize that to act as the central planning Mm -hmm. mechanism or set up an algorithm or what have you that would you know meet all human needs but the problem is that human needs are infinite right like yeah there's never going to be which goes back to the text would be he draws this question or that he makes this statement about It will seem that given the initial state of the machine and the input signals, it is always possible to predict all future states. This is reminiscent of Laplace's view that from the complete state of the universe at one time, as described by the positions and velocities of all particles, it should be possible to predict all future states. The prediction which we're considering is, however, rather nearer to practicability than the system considered by Laplace. The system of the universe as a whole is such that Quite small errors in the initial conditions can have an overwhelming effect at a later time. The displacement of a single electron by a billionth of a centimeter, I don't know if we necessarily need to go through the rest of that. But I think, do I don't know if you see what I'm ultimately getting at with regard to this computational aspect. Can we ever reduce human needs in an economic sense? Can that ever reach a state to where it would fit into this discrete aspect maybe not right like is that yeah. is that putting a, a square peg into a round hole or what something like that right
3: that's the question that we're stuck with is we're you know we live in a world that's organized by by that this kind of heuristic principle and so it seems natural to say that yes maybe there is some metric you use the word of production this this way of reducing human needs and so the question is is it is that a bias of of our of our capitalist world That makes us see these things this way, or or is it possible, or perhaps you know, with you know, when you bring up quantum computing, it is very interesting because it allows for specific, very specific kinds of computations to be done way, way faster than ever before. For the vast majority of applications, a quantum computer operates in the exact same way as a classical computer, and so just on a
2: faster, more powerful. But yeah, the ultimate like baseline mm-hmm. function is sort of the same as my example of multiplication. It's just like this more deterr right. is like this more deterritorialized evolution of mm-hmm. even something like multiplication. You could probably go back in history and like multiplication would come from addition, right? So we started with our digits, our hands, like literally counting on our hands, and then that becomes deterritorialized into number a numerical system, etc. Right, and then it. Mm-hmm goes on and on from there in this iterative abacus, relation yeah, yeah. yeah and i guess for me the question is like from a sort of scientific marxist point of view like is this even a goal that we should pursue or is this a in the sense of meeting human needs right and the infant yeah. the way that human needs are never going to be this discrete calculable thing because every time there's a new grounds of possibility. Mm -hmm. And that is going to impact the subsequent expression, right? Because that would even go towards this notion of contingency as a universal. Everything isn't determined until in the last instance, right? Right, right. Even in our discussion, I don't know if you listened to this with uh, John Rofe, we kind of ended up in this discussion where like all prices are derivative and the price really isn't set until literally at the time of the purchase. Exactly, so there's this yeah. weird kind of like relationship between determinism and imminence and et cetera that I probably, I'm not smart enough to really articulate that, but I find yeah. it super fascinating.
3: I find it interesting as well. And I think that there are, depending on how you frame this question and this idea, I think that there are many, if you go back to kind of, Marxist standpoint, there are definitely, at least in my eyes, there are a lot of debates that do, even though they may not realize it, they are kind of hinging on this question of the mechanisms by which social organization or right, by yeah, which exactly. social organization and social production and social reproduction, by the mechanisms by which those take place. Like who
2: decides what's important, you know? That's the qu- yeah. who decide and that's where intensity, I think, sort exactly. of almost comes into play again. Who decides what what needs are and what gets met, right? Figuring out that problem mm-hmm. is maybe the real root issue that we have to figure out is who sets the problems, right, Taylor?
3: And the ways in which or even even using the word who to say that it, there is a definite subject that makes this decision i think that depending on your how you read marx's conception of communism or whatever i think that there's very much a reading perhaps one that i would be predisposed to we might say that communism is the abolition of that way of thinking right perhaps not that's not the best way to put it but it is the the abolition of that of of that structure of power that kind of uh the ways in which these decisions sort of ripple out throughout the the social whatever the social space is and I think that in their own way Deleuze and Guattari as they propose um as Deleuze and Guattari have their own um you know way of their ironic universal history in, in anti-edipus I think that that is very much about the the ways in which these social production takes place and the ways in which these decisions we might we might call them or these procedures these functions of society as as the resources are distributed etc cetera, etc cetera, and as these categories in which people conceive of themselves and people conceive of the things that they do the way that that whole process takes place over time I do think that you can see that Marx is positing sorry i'm jumping all over the place a bit but i think that both Marx and them see the the ultimate sort of political project within their own works as a as an attempt at a way out of this mode or mechanism of organization i don't really <laughs> i hope that made some kind of sense or went somewhere yeah i but, think so
2: i think my ultimate point was like uh-huh. This idea that with markets, and well, I mean, then that gets complicated too, because markets alone aren't necessarily indicative yeah. of capitalism, but it's complicated. There's, if you're trying to solve this problem of human needs and wants via the market, the market is good in the sense because, in a way, it has this indifference. It's a distributed intelligence, it, it's a distributed way of making decisions that isn't sort of hierarchical in a sense, although it can fall in like on, at least maybe a priori. It's not necessarily yeah. right. this hierarchy. Like obviously the shit can get captured by the hierarchy and like utilized, but there's something to this openness of capitalism. It's creative destruction element that I don't know. I, that's an interesting like problem that we have to sort of figure out. I think is whether, you know, socialism, communism, etc. is mm-hmm. like, how do we really how do we deal with this problem in a way that doesn't become i guess this develop this hierarchy where problems are determined at the top and then we mm-hmm. have no real input right in a way we do via the market like we all have input via the market but obviously the people that can purchase more or provide more have an outsized influence on what gets produced and how do you right. So how do you square that issue? And is that even a possible, is that a solvable contradiction that you can even mediate? Yeah,
3: part of this has to do with just Capital Volume 2 being on my mind. But I think the lens of of reproduction specifically of this notion that we often think of uh, when we're interacting with the market as a bunch of simple inputs and outputs, yada, yada, but this is a, a very specific arrangement that has to reproduce itself and that has to continue in specific ways, which means that this mechanism of organization has to reproduce these same conditions as well as, obviously, you know, as competition goes on, do commodities, yada, yada, yada. But there is this basic formulation that remains, and the class structure is is an essential component of that, right? Each, individual unit, individual social unit, each person has a specific circuit that they fill out within some kind of production period. And you might be able to deviate your circuit one way or another, but you are in many ways sort of shoehorned into the position that you're in. And even the capitalists, they don't increase surplus value just because they want to. Exactly. (laughs) You know, they have to. And so it is in that sense very much a kind of autonomous mechanism that you know I think people there there's a lot of literature on like capital as an automatic subject that's very interesting in that regard. And so that is the, I agree, the kind of a big essential political question is related for both Marx and Deleuze and Guattari on how both how the world. Currently organizes itself, currently operates, and on what might be possible to move beyond that mechanism of, of categorization. I think yeah.
2: that might be a good uh, moment to wrap up the episode, unless <laughs> yeah, if you both agree. I don't. I didn't really have anything else other than a bunch of other galaxy brain nonsense.
3: There's nothing wrong with with <laughs> with nonsense. Mentats of the world unite. This was
0: great. I had a lot of fun.
2: That will wrap up this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins.
1: The very rules of eating of negativity and singularity including the ultimate form of singularity which is alchemy to the whole state of things in pure of violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I mean is the following nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in block work orange.